Welcome to this episode of Cracking Addiction. And we have Laura Petracek and Kate Butler with us. So I thought today we'd talk about how we can use DBT to help people in their experience with chronic pain. So first of all, Kate, what is chronic pain? Um, so chronic pain is basically any pain um, that has gone beyond the three-month um, mark with with experience um, and where there is generally um, some pathology. Um, however, mm. the pathology is generally um, recovered from um, but continues mm. on. That's my experience. So it's persistent pain beyond, beyond the time it takes for usual healing. And, you know, we know that there are certain psychological factors that predispose people to, to experiencing this chronic pain. Would you be able to explain to us what, what these might be? So um, people have tra traumas in their life um, that can mm. affect their um, experience of pain. So generally um, mm. people with anxiety or depression um, have worse chronic pain rather than people that do not. Um, you know, sometimes uh, um, if they've had a signi significant life stressor, um, you know, uh, realising that you can't have children um, and, and it just goes on and on, losing a job um, can make the chronic pain worse. And, and their, their coping mechanisms um, aren't always there, so therefore they um, tend to catastrophize as well. Um, which makes things even uh, worse and worse, and they tend to ruminate. So you've, you've used the word catastrophize. You know that's a specific psychological term. What, what, is, what does what mm. does catastrophization mean? Do you, can you give us a definition of that? Um, so th um, where they th think the pain is never going to end, nothing's ever going to get better for them. Um, mm. The the pain affects them every single day. Um, you know they can't can't see a light at the end of the tunnel because the yeah, pain is so bad yeah. yeah yeah so really what i'm hearing is that really you know trauma mental health disorder and catastrophization they play significant uh roles in the perpetuation of pain beyond healing time uh, and they make significant contributions to the experience of chronic pain or chronic non-cancer pain as we've as we've now know to describe it as so going to Laura, Laura, we're, we're hearing these phrases of catastrophizing mental health disorders like anxiety and depression and you know, a history of trauma. As a psychologist, do you believe that there is a role for psychology in chronic pain? Oh, most definitely for a role. Um, a psychologist mm -hmm. in Boston, uh, he wrote a book called um, The Full Catastrophe Living, John's about Zen, hmm. and he's a psychologist out of uh, University of Massachusetts. And hmm. in their clinic, it was a pain. It is a pain clinic, and so he um, invented an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program for people hmm. who had chronic pain, and then he later opened it up to other people, and. Um, I myself have actually gone through that eight-week program. Um, and in this program uh, and in his book, he talks about what happens in each of the sessions, like teaching mindfulness, teaching meditation, 
when you talk about catastrophizing, it reminded me of one of the skills that's taught is called the thought record. So on the very left-hand side, it would be, oh, I'll never get better. And then the next column would be a challenge thought to that. What's a more accurate appraisal? And then, you know, looking at how do you feel after you say you'll never get better versus the pain is right now, or I don't know how it's going to be in the future. And this program, uh, after doing a, a lot of research on it, found that it was extremely successful in helping people who have chronic pain. Um, so I think mm. this program, the mindfulness-based stress reduction, in addition to um, some DBT skills, would be very helpful for people that suffer or are very helpful for people that suffer from con- chronic pain. Because they, the outcome was their rating of the pain lessened. It went like from maybe uh, six to seven to eight to two, three, or four. There was a huge decrease. Yeah. I mean, you've said a couple of key words there, Laura. I mean, yet again, you've mentioned John Kabat-Zinn, you know, the great inventor of mindfulness. Um, and you've mentioned the concept of stress reduction, you know. So I think... A lot of people, it's certainly in my experience, when I ask people, you know, when you get stressed, does your pain get worse? They say no. And I think, I think it's because they fear, a great fear that patients have that I've, know, that I've come to realize is they fear the statement, oh, the doctor thinks it's all in my head. And I think that fear blinds patients to the idea that stress really does make your pain worse. And that, that chronic pain... Chronic non-cancer pain fluctuates and you do get exacerbations of it. And some of those, at least some of those exacerbations are due to stress. I mean, Kate, have you, have you had that experience? Oh, definitely. Um, um, in my work, um, I, I spoke to a patient recently and uh, she'd come in for an exacerbation of um, chronic back pain. Very, very, very common admission. Um, and I just chatted her about, you know, I said, oh, look, what's happening in your life at the moment? Um, has any any changes happened? Uh, and she, she, you know, she just said she just broke down and started crying. And she said, oh, my husband's been going through all these health issues. And, you know, he had a massive oper- operation on his neck and it's been really stressful and it's been constant. And, uh, and I'm been caring for him and you know that just happened in the last uh four months and these pain this pain started in the last four months and I said okay cool so we need to tackle this from a different perspective would you have a comment to make to that Laura yeah um first I'll make a comment to your comment um or, or what you shared you know that patients are afraid to disclose or to agree with uh, stress is causing their pain. Um, in addition to maybe feeling uh, that you would look, that we would look at them as, oh, it's all in your head. Um, of course, a lot of that is afraid of being judged. So they're not going to say that there's a connection because people don't want to be judged or they don't want to feel shame. And I think, you know, referring to what Kate's shared, um, that's very common, especially somatic therapy looks at um, connecting, okay, this is the stress. You say it's 
presenting itself with back pain, but what's going on in your life? Like Kate had asked, because I do think there's a strong connection to physical pain and the emotional pain that's happening in our life. But for most people, you know, we're from a society that it's okay if you have a back pain or shoulder pain to go see the doctor. But if you go and say, hey, my husband had this horrible surgery, the doctor's going to be like, what? Like, no, you know, we're, we're not, that's not as accepted talking about as emotions as it is to talk about physical problems. And whether it's Australia or America, it's definitely in European countries, it seems to be the norm that it's okay to go in and say, um, I have back pain, but not about the emotion of what's happening, the situation. So another couple of things that, uh, that I think about when I, when I consider chronic pain is, is I consider the idea of the pain-insensitive warrior. So we've all heard stories of absolute heroic, heroic deeds done by people who have, had, who have experienced significant trauma be it on the battlefield or be it in some kind of civilian catastrophe. And they don't experience pain. And yet we've also got patients who, for various reasons, and particularly especially if there's a history of background childhood trauma, experience significant amount of pain and there doesn't seem to be any actual tissue damage. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile those two presentations what's going on do you reckon so kate i'd like your opinion on that that's difficult when when there's actual no tissue damage um however you know generally um in regards to what we teach with regards to trauma people can have had scar tissue um and scar tissue can uh, pain associated with scar tissue can present at any time um it may have been underlying at the time but um, it could be that stress has affected their coping mechanisms, um, whereby they can't just they can't cope. They they can't maintain that homeostasis and deal with that anxiety because of their life stress. So therefore, um, pain is more significant in their lives because of the stress. Um, is that something that um, could be a, a theory around that? maybe mm. Mm -hmm. well, what about the hero that doesn't suffer pain how do you explain that i would say that's the adrenaline <laughs> yeah and there are specific mechanisms between mm. the, the top of the back of the brain and the spinal cord that block pain signals from from the rest of the body and that is that's mm. associated with the adrenaline rush isn't it mm, definitely but there we have a perfect example of the relationship between the experience of pain or the variation in the experience of pain and the and you know the the, the brain's cognitive state. What, what do you say to mm -hmm. that, Laura? Well, I think it's there is a few things. Um, the hero that experiences no pain. Part of it is the adrenaline, but I think also part of it is thinking it's it's a selfless act. So they're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking, I want to rescue this person who's stuck under a car. Or 
I think about this one uh, movie in World War II, then title escapes me at the moment, but this guy already wounded went up and back this hill, this battlefield to rescue like 26 men. And he kept saying, I want to save just one yeah. more, just one mm-hmm. more. Yeah. Now that I think was so, the movie was something with edge in it. Yes. And it was just razor so edge. Yeah. Something like that, but it was just so powerful to watch it and, and not just watch it, but to see his, um, dedication to mankind or his fellow man, you know, like, I'm not going to think about myself dying. I'm going to rescue my focus is on you rescuing you. Mm. And so it's this altruistic feeling as well. Whereas someone who can't tolerate a lot of pain, I think, yes, it's, um, it's connected to childhood trauma. And I think there may be, and I, I don't mean to be judgmental, but some of it is also self-involved. Like, so like I heard, you know, my nail fell off or, you know, they, it's, it's a minor quote unquote. I mean, I guess it's all relative how you view it, but um, I think clients that are more self-involved experience pain in a greater way than uh, the hero does um, mm. because they're not thinking about anyone else. Um, and, and not that, you know, everyone has to be altruistic all the time, but, you know, again, going back to that movie and I'm sure there's uh, millions of different examples, but, um, but I've seen it in my own patients where, you know, one uh, patient, uh, she got hit by a car on a bicycle and Yes, the adrenaline was, I think, keeping her from crying as she shared it. But also, she kind of grew up in a, um, like, you have to be tough background. Um, like, not crying, not that crying's not allowed, but more, you know, it's the pain is equal to whatever happened, I, I guess, for whatever. Um, whereas then someone else, you know, they got rewarded for, oh, I fell down, scraped my knee. Oh, that's terrible. I never want you running again. Or, you know, um, I think that's part of the factor too, of parenting, parenting factors. So we've looked at the kind of the relationship between the past and the experience of pain and the mental state and the experience of pain. You know, that's all well and good, but what what are the psychological techniques that can be used to actually help people with chronic pain? I mean, Laura, you've mentioned at the beginning of this chat the possibility of mindfulness stress, uh, stress mindfulness based stress reduction. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what you as a psychologist, how do you help people with pain? What techniques do you use? Well, one technique is teaching mindfulness and meditation. So, in terms of Teaching mindfulness, like taking them through, what are you aware of now? And now, and now, what's, you know, teaching them, taking them through a body scan. Let's go through each parts of your body um, and what are you experiencing? And then, because a lot of clients are so not in touch with their body. Um, And then another skill is looking at uh, meditation, yes? Or did you want to say something? Um, another skill is looking at meditation. And then I have some DBT skills I will could also recommend. 
So given that you are an expert in DBT, Laura, pray tell, what are the specific DBT skills that you can use to help people in pain? Because really, wow. we're talking about chronic pain really as a cognitive uh, construct, aren't we? Yeah, it is. So one of the cognitive, uh, one of the um, DBT skills is called ACCEPTS. That's the acronym. And it stands mm -hmm. for um, getting involved. A stands for activities. C is contributing, like being of service, getting out of your own head. Um, the other one is uh, compare. Basically, if you compare, or in the 12-step program, they call it compare despair. So there's always going to be people greater or lesser than ourselves or more pain or less pain. But if we compare ourselves to them, it's usually ends up on the negative. Um, emotions, letting emotions flow. Um, looking at your thoughts. And this is where I do a thought record, which I, it's a CBT skill I find very helpful. And then S is distract yourself with sensations. Maybe take a cool bath, go out in nature, um, eat some ice cream, uh, go dancing. So that's one of the DBT skills is called accepts. Another one is called improve. And improve stands for improving the moment. So we're looking at imagery, like so in the groups or individual therapy, showing pictures. My office goes, it, um, is connected to my backyard. So I usually take clients out there just to look at the trees and maybe pick an orange or a lemon and smell it and, um, you know, try to, again, get out of their own head. Um, M is meaning. And this goes back to uh, Viktor Frankl, who said, if there's a why, then a person could figure out the how. If someone has a purpose, it helps them more accept the pain, deal with the pain, than if it's just a never-ending, enduring the suffering. That is a lot tougher for someone to, to tolerate. But if someone has a purpose or if there's a why I'm doing this for my kid, my job, whatever the, whatever the why is, the more uh, the person can persevere. And P stands for prayer. And prayer doesn't necessarily have to mean religion or um, God or a higher power. Uh, I remember uh, one line from Mary Oliver's uh, poems, many poems. She goes, I don't know how to pray, but I know how to pay attention. And that is a form of prayer, paying attention to this moment. Um, the R for relaxation, doing yoga, going for a walk. The O stands for doing one thing at a time. So for AA, this is really big. One minute at a time, one day at a time. That's how you tolerate not picking up a drink or a drug. How do you tolerate pain? Five minutes at a time, five seconds at a time. You know, how do you tolerate the craving? Five minutes at a time, at least initially in one's recovery. Um, the V stands for vacation. Not everyone could, of course, up and go somewhere. So 
you know, I think it's something you have to plan and I think it's a great idea. <laughs> and then encouragement, get support, be in a support group, like, you know, one of your support groups or find one online. And also, um, so those are some of the skills, accepts and um, using uh, distraction skills. How does that sound to you, Kate? Is that something that could be used in uh, the cohort of patients that uh, you look after? Definitely. It's um, more of a question of whether the patient would be accepting of that in, in that time or point. Um, usually when mm. they come into an inpatient space, um, their stress is at the max and that, that's the reason why they're um, presented to uh the facility um and, and thinking about that not everyone's willing to engage in something like that um i have used in the past um i've talked to people about mindfulness um, mindfulness techniques and also about how they've used that to um, modulate their pain um i do teach try to teach patients grounding techniques if they get intermittent pain or function um, causes their pain to get worse. Um, and they're very open to it sometimes, but not everyone is. So I think, think it's about finding the right amount of um, right patient cohort who are open to that. Um, not right, but, you know, suitable in their their recovery journey uh, as well because they're not necessarily able to be open to those um, non-pharmacological therapies because they're so, um, what the word, attached to what they normally take and they sometimes they just believe increasing the dose or um, trying something different will change it. It will make it worse. Yeah. So, um, and I work in inpatient setting. So the reason why I want to look into these type of types of techniques is because sometimes when they come in their crisis, the only option is just to refer to a clinic where there's a massive wait list. So I was trying to give them tools to exercise um, you know, when they go home and practice. So maybe they could try to alter their pain experience um, while they're waiting for, for other support networks. So unfortunately, we run out of time once again. I want to <laughs> thank you both for your expert contributions to this fascinating discussion on psychological interventions for chronic non-cancer pain. But uh, th thank you both. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. <laughs>